0: Uh, turn in your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2. We're going to talk about these just brief two verses, 12 and 13, this morning. I begin with this question. How is a person saved? Is it the gracious gift of God freely given by grace apart from human effort? Or is it the combined work of grace and our good works? Well, you might know the answer to that. But there's many people who don't. In fact, a survey was conducted last year among Americans who identified themselves as Christians. The survey discovered that 52%, more than half of Americans who call themselves Christians, either evangelical or Pentecostal, believe a person is, if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. 52%. Salvation for them is something that you earn by good works. And if there's grace involved, it it assists our good works, but good works are necessary to get to heaven. Now, if you add into that number um, all the mainline Protestants and Catholic churches, I'm sure the number is much, much higher as well. This view of good works being necessary or a part of salvation is reflected in this quote I read uh, from a woman who was explaining to her pastor her view of salvation. She said it like this. I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat, she said. One oar is faith, and the other oar is works. If you use both, you get there. You use only one, you go around in circles. The pastor replied, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody is going to heaven in a rowboat. And that may sound right to a lot of people. You know, you got works and you've got faith and and you use the two of them together, eventually that will get you to heaven. It makes sense to people, but it's totally unbiblical. It's wrong. You see, salvation is not the combined effort of man and God, his good works and God's grace, but it is entirely the work of grace. It's not we do 50% and God does his 50%. It's not even God does 99%, we do one. You see, it's all of grace. There's no room for boasting. Now, somebody might throw their hand up and say, well, what about Philippians 2.12? It says there that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't that mean that we must work for it? We've got to do something? Well, that isn't what this verse is saying. In fact, we need to understand Philippians 2.12-13 to 13 on its own terms. Uh, one author is very helpful here. He states, Philippians two twelve to 13 is difficult only when we do not hear it within the context of everything Paul states about God's work of redemption and our involvement in that work. So it's only difficult if you don't get the whole picture. If you read this one verse apart from anything else, you might get the wrong idea. But we must read it in terms of everything else, all that the Bible says about salvation. And it, It's pretty clear that this verse is not saying we work to earn our salvation. Really, this work is about sanctification. Sanctification meaning the process of being made holy. Sometimes we call it progressive sanctification. In other words, it's a a continual process by which a person is made more like Christ. Let's read the verses together. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So what are these verses about? Well, they show that Christian growth is accomplished through the power of God in us, enabling us to live in obedience to him. It's God's work in us, enabling us to live in obedience to the Lord. And that might be a pretty good definition of what sanctification is really all about. God working in us that we might obey and do what God requires and what he asks of us. So it's not working your salvation, not earning it. It's responding to the salvation we've been given. Now, these two verses present what a appears to be a paradox, that these two don't seem like they should go together. Is it us working out our salvation, or is it God working in us? Which is it? Well, this is the key to understanding both of them, that we must keep both of these verses together if they're to make any sense. If we, if we go with verse 12, we risk going into a sort of a works righteousness, if we go all the way into verse 13, we can slip into sort of this mystical, let go and let God. And so we must keep both verses in balance if they are to make any sense out of it. They present, of course, two sides. Man's responsibility or your responsibility and God's activity. And that's basically going to be our outline this morning. I want us to look at them. What is your responsibility in this? Well, basically it is this. It is gospel-shaped obedience. And I use that precise expression for a reason. It is gospel-shaped obedience. We'll explain what that means as we go through this verse. Let's look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So here's the two sides, and we get the first one, man's responsibility, our responsibility, in verse 12. To suggest that it is all of God and that we do nothing is wrong. Likewise, it's also wrong to suggest that God does it all and we do nothing. Again, you have to keep both of these verses in balance. Uh, He begins here by setting the context for us. I want us to see the context, if we're going to make sense out of this. Look at the beginning. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren. Now, The therefore connects us back to what's come before it. Now, here's the question. This is one that's a matter of biblical interpretation. When you see the word therefore, how far back does it connect? Uh, Is he just saying verses 9 through 11? Is he talking about verses 5 through 11? Is he talking about verses 1 to 11? What's he talking about here? Is it just the exaltation of Jesus? Is it the humility of Jesus? Is it the command that's been given? I think if we're to follow it all the way back, I think it goes back to chapter one, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. You notice by the way, the echoes of verse 27 that are in 20 in verse 12 of chapter two. Absence, presence, he talks about that. he talks about working out your salvation there. He says, "Let your conduct be worthy." Really, these two verses are saying much the same thing as we'll discover. So the context really goes back to verse chapter one, verse twenty seven. He's circling back around to that thought he shared in chapter one. So we see the context. He also mentions them in verse uh, twelve as being my beloved. He says, therefore, my beloved. Now, he's already referred to the Philippians as brothers in this letter, and now he calls them beloved. It's a term of very close relationship. Those whom I love. It's not just that he had sort of a passing relationship with the Philippians. He had a deep relationship with them. He had served in this church. They were not just names on a page to Paul. These were people who he loved. I think about this sometimes when I'm out and about. I I sometimes will meet another pastor and we'll talk. And and when I talk about our church, it's not just an abstraction. Like when he talks about his church, I I don't know the people in his church from anybody. And even though we have Christ in common, and certainly there's that connection, I can't really say that, man, I, I love your church. I don't know your church. When I think about our church, I can say, yes, my beloved, right? Because I know you and have come to love you. And hopefully you've come to love me in some ways. (laughs) Nevertheless, that's the kind of relationship Paul has with the Philippians. But beyond that, this term beloved is often used of God and his people. So it's almost like Paul is saying, you who are beloved, not just by me, but by God. And that's a truth that we can never wear out, is it? That God Calls us his beloved, that he has set his love upon us, not because we did some good work that caused him to, quote unquote, fall in love with us, not at all. He loved us because God is love. So Paul addresses them as my beloved, who are likewise God's beloved church. So we see the context going all the way back to verse 20, 127. I also want us to point out their conduct. What what does he commend the Philippians for here in chapter 2, verse 12? He says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He's talking about the conduct of the Philippians here. And he mentions first their proven track record. You see this? He says, as you have always obeyed. The Philippians have had... A pattern of obedience in their lives Paul recognizes that You've always obeyed Unlike some other churches perhaps that Paul could think of You know the Corinthian church, the Galatian church Some others that had some Difficult problems The Philippian church though has had a posture of obedience That's been their track record It's a church which has always obeyed Not not just Paul Paul's not saying, you know, you obeyed me, good. But rather they have obeyed the Lord. They have obeyed the scriptures. They have obeyed the teaching which Paul has handed down to them from the Lord himself. See, they have a pattern of obedience, a proven track record. Interestingly, the, the word obeyed here and the word obey in the New Testament is closely related to the word hear. It seems to be a pattern Obedience is through hearing. You hear something, and ideally, if you're obeying, it's hearing put into action. Hearing put into action. That's the idea of obedience. That's why at our house sometimes I think that we might have some hearing problems. At least that's the way it seems. I can give an instruction to one of the little people living in our home, and nothing. And you're kind of like, knock, knock, anybody home? Like, did you hear me? because you're, you're going along like you didn't hear me. And that's what disobedience is. It's to close our ears, to stop up our ears. We don't hear, we don't obey. We don't apply. Even if we did hear it, it's not being lived out. Therefore, it's not applied hearing. Well, the Philippians didn't have stopped up ears. They were always obedient, growing in grace. Now, some people seem to have this idea That obedience, even to the New Testament, sounds too much like legalism. Like, we shouldn't have to obey anything. Obedience is legalism. One author I read states it like this. Application is almost always a code word for law. Later on, he goes on and says in a different book, growth in the Christian life is the process of receiving Christ's it is finished into new and deeper parts of our being every day. So for him, Christian life is not about obeying. It's about sort of this mystical experience with Christ. Well, for Paul, what's man's responsibility? It's gospel-shaped obedience. And that's what the Philippians had. You see, it's gospel-shaped, not law-shaped. We don't obey because we've been given a strict law and we keep it in order to earn points. No, we obey because of the gospel. Jesus saved us. We belong to him and so we obey him, not out of fear, but out of love, not out of a sense of duty necessarily, although there is a duty there, but out of a sense of gratefulness because of the gospel. So it's not legalism to suggest obedience is part of Christian life. It's gospel-shaped obedience. Not only does he point out their proven track record, though, he also talks about their sincere motives here. You notice this? not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So their obedience was not just superficial. Again, uh, you tell a child to do something, and as long as mom or dad is standing there watching over, they're doing it. As soon as mom or dad leaves the room, it's a different story. It's, It's not really sincere obedience, is it? And that's that's not just kids, that's human nature, isn't it? That all of us, you know, if we're being watched, yeah, we're going to do something much more diligently. We're going to obey for being watched. My guess is you were probably very diligent to pay attention to to the speed limit today if you had a sheriff's deputy riding right behind you, right? You'd be watching your speedometer because, you know what, I I don't want to... I don't want to go a little bit over because I, you know, I don't want to see those lights come on behind me. That's just human nature. Now, in the absence of the deputy, I'm going to go as fast as I want. See, that's human nature that we, we tend to obey in the presence but not in absence. Well, the Philippians had sincere motives. They obeyed not just when Paul was standing hovering over their shoulder, but they obeyed with sincere motives completely, even in Paul's absence, and he commends them for that. But based upon their previous track record, based upon their conduct, he gives the command. The command of verse 12 is this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is where people pick up that idea, work out your salvation, work salvation. But many people have pointed out, and I think rightly, it does not say work at your salvation, It doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say work towards your salvation. It says work out your salvation, implying that the salvation is already there. It's not something that you're earning. It's something that you're working out. It's already in you, but it's our responsibility to work it out in practical ways. Again, I already mentioned this is a command. It's an imperative verb. Uh, it's also in the present tense, which means, for this in this case, that it's an ongoing action. It's not something that you just do once. We'll check that off the list. You know, okay, I worked out my salvation. What do I do next? Instead, it's a day by day thing. It's every day of our lives as believers. We're working out that salvation in practical ways. Well, what does it mean? I- I'm using that term: work out your salvation. But it really means that our lives should reflect, in tangible ways, the salvation we've been given in Christ. You've been saved by grace? Okay, live in light of that. Let every word, let every action, let every thought be shaped by that truth that you've been saved by Christ. This word also implies working out effort, doesn't it? Activity, energy being expended. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you read of the Christian life in terms of athletic metaphors, running a race, fighting the good fight. It, it's implying sort of an activity and energy. This is something that's going to take some work. Again, let me circle around back to the point I made earlier, and that is Paul, I think, is, is repeating himself here, basically. Because he already told them in verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, chapter 1. That's what it means to work out your salvation, letting every day, letting your conduct be worthy of the message of the salvation you have. And so Paul's kind of being a good preacher here, actually. Oftentimes when I'm preaching or or when you hear somebody who's a really good preacher, not to say that I am, but what you try to do is you make a point, you explain the point, illustrate the point, and then you come back around, you make the point again. Uh, the point just keeps getting made, and that's what Paul does. He says in verse 20, chapter 1, 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And in case you've forgotten it by the middle of chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's, he's driving home the same point yet again. It's, it's gospel-shaped obedience. That's what the Christian life is all about. So, what does it look like? Well, it looks like us obeying Christ's commands. Again, not legalism, but obeying what God has said because he's told us to. We're his children. It's not out of, out of uh, some sense of you know, obeying the law or earning our salvation, but rather out of our relationship forged by this salvation we have. Some people, though, get real uncomfortable with the idea of working out our salvation. Again, it sounds too much like work. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says it in this way. He says, among conservative Christians, there's sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or moral exertion. We're scared of words like diligence, effort, and duty. But that's part of what it takes to grow in godliness. Paul says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, exercise yourself towards godliness. It's work. Now, I know I've used this illustration before, but it just keeps circling back around, so I have to use it. And that is, later on today, two NFL teams are going to play in the Super Bowl. And Tom Brady will be playing in his 10th Super Bowl, which is pretty incredible. And now setting the record yet again for being the oldest quarterback to play in the Super Bowl. And I think it's a fair question to ask whether Tom Brady is really human or not, because he doesn't seem to age, really. I mean, it's, he's playing almost as well now as he's ever played, and he just he doesn't seem to slow down. But what's the key? Well, I'll tell you this. Tom Brady works hard at being a good quarterback, um, his his diet is famous for being just incredibly rigid. He only eats certain products and you know, he avoids all kinds of things that would probably be everyday items for us. He works out, you know, he works incredibly hard. It's not like Super Bowl rings just fall into his lap, even though it sometimes seems like that. He works incredibly hard. And the point is, Anything in life requires some effort, and that is true of Christian living as well. We are to exercise ourselves, work out our salvation. But that's not all. If we just stop there and said, well, work it out, it sounds like I'm saying Christian life is all about you. You just, you make it work. Go out and do it. But that's only half the story. Because we have to go down to verse 13 as well. It's not just you. It's not just Go out and produce the fruit of righteousness in your life. No, there's another half we have to consider. Look at verse 13. The Bible here says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So your responsibility is gospel-shaped obedience. You're responding to the salvation you have by working it out, living a conduct worthy of the gospel. God's activity, though, is gospel produced transformation. God is working in us so that we can work it out. So the working in is just as important as the working out going on. So gospel produced transformation is taking place in the believer. Again, verse 13 says that God, it is God who works in you. Progress in Christian living is not just elbow grease it's not just you go do it apart from Christ the Bible says we can do nothing so I think what would be helpful here is to just ask some basic questions of the passage to help us understand verse 13 the kind of the who what where why questions number one the who of this verse is God the who of this verse is God who is it that's working well, here in verse 13, it says, it is God who works in you. Now, that doesn't mean that we do nothing, but instead the focus has shifted now to God who is at work. And this is so true. Did you know that within and of yourself, let's just use me as an example, in and of myself, there is no good thing that I produce. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. You know, There's no good thing being produced in me. So if anything good is going to come out of me, it's got to be the work of God somewhere. If, if it's just left on my own, my decisions, my actions, my choices, my thoughts are going to be self-serving, self-centered, uh, wicked, self-pleasing. They're going to all be desires that find their end in me, not in God. So if there's anything good going to come out of a life of a believer, it has to be the working of God in them first. The who is God. And this is consistent with what we read elsewhere in the Bible. For instance, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe the closest parallel to Philippians 2.13 is Colossians 1.29, which says this, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, that's God, his working, which works mightily in me. That, I think that really captures it. Paul says, I labor according to the work that God's doing in me. Doesn't mean that Paul sits down and says, you know what? Since there's nothing good in me, God, you're going to have to do it all. I'm just going to sit back. Nothing is required of me except God to work in me. And that's a view that some people have. And it goes back to the second great awakening and even before this idea of the higher life teaching that really is captured in that phrase, let go and let God. And the idea is, well, if we want any good to be produced in us, the Christian life must be lived by God himself through us. And therefore, we don't do anything. We let go and let God. Listen to what uh, one teacher, proponent of this, uh, Andrew Murray, says. He writes in his book, Abide in Christ. What the believer can do of himself is altogether sinful. He must therefore cease entirely from his own doing and wait for the working of God in him. God's work is hindered by our own interference. He can do his work perfectly only when the soul ceases from its work. Well, there are some truths perhaps in there, but he's taking Philippians 2.13 and pulling it away from Philippians 2.12. He's highlighted God working, yes, but sometimes at the expense of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Let go and let God, for a lot of people, has a very biblical-sounding kind of spiritual ring to it, but the way it's often used, it's only half the picture, That's not the full scope of what Christian living is all about. So it's God working, yes. But it's a working in which we are laboring as well. And so to to go to either extreme to say that it's all of us is wrong. And to say, well, it's all of God. I sit and do nothing. Then I'm afraid we've made the same mistake. It's the same one I mentioned earlier when the person said, obedience is legalism. You know, all we need to do is just continue to be uh, lost in this. It is finished forever, and we never get around to living out practical obedience. So the who is God? The where is in you. The where is in you. Verse thirteen: For it is God who works where in you. Now, at first glance, that might look like God is working in your life, in your heart, in your mind. That's true. But this is actually a plural noun. So it's working in you, the church, all of you all. Yes, it is in you. God does work in us as individuals. But also, Paul's main point here is that in you, the church, your salvation is being worked out. In relation to one another, as you grow, as you learn to be humble like Christ was humble, as you learn to walk like Jesus, work out your salvation. It's in you as an individual, and it must be there first. God must work in our hearts as individuals first, and then we work it out as a church, as his people. The where is in you. The what is transformation. Transformation taking place in our lives. Notice what he says in verse 13. What's God doing? What is he working in us? Both both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So, God is working in both the willing and in the doing, or the working. So, in the willing, what does that mean? It means that God is changing our desires, what we want. You know, I can tell you, again, using myself as an example, my desires are of themselves self focused, I want what I want. So how does where does the desire for godliness come from? Where does the desire to exalt Jesus come from? Where does the desire to live in holiness and to uh, live in purity come from? It's God's working in us. We would not desire and love the truth. We would not desire and love holiness apart from God changing our wills, our wants, so that they reflect what he wants for us. So God changes our desires, and that's... That's how we get to working it out, right? It's not just, well, start working it out on your own. God changes what we want. I don't know about you, but I found the longer I've been a believer and the more I've grown, some of my desires have changed. Things that I wanted when I was a younger believer or a younger person don't really appeal to me anymore. Instead, I desire other things. And that's not because I just... You know, develop that way and you, know, you can find some sociological reason for it. It's because God has been at work in changing what I want. But not only in the wanting, but also in the working. It says not only to will, but to do for his good pleasure. So even the things that we do are energized and enabled by the Lord. The working out of our salvation is actually God's work in us. It's not to say that we should sit down now and let God's work run the show and, and therefore you know we don't have to do anything but we do recognize whatever I do that is good is a product of what God has done for me in me and through me so the what is transformation finally the why though is his good pleasure you see that at the end of verse 13 the why is God's pleasure why does he do it why does God work in me at all because it pleases him too it pleases God my progress, my growth, my following after the Lord, it pleases him. And what what other reason does God have to have for doing anything? He does what pleases himself. He has a perfect, a perfect will, a perfect desire. And so he does whatever pleases him. And he needs no other reason to do it. So we have in this passage what looks like a paradox at first. You know, work out your salvation. Or is it God working in you? And yet these two truths have to be together if they're going to make any sense. We need to have a biblical balance here. So God's activity is gospel-produced transformation. Let me give a little illustration that hopefully will help bring these two together. Imagine for a moment that I gifted you with a field, a plot of ground, and I said, I want you to go out and, and use this. It's a great field. Um, produce whatever crop or whatever you want to grow on it. So what do you do with your field? Well, to start off with, you start plowing it up and you till up your field. You turn the dirt over. You, you get it to where you can plant in it. And then you sow your seed and you you tend your field. You work at it, right? You, you go out there and pull the weeds out of your field. You pick the rocks out of your field. And after... Some days, the, the field begins to produce crops. Now let me ask, did you produce that crop? Well, you can, you can say, I worked at the field. Or maybe you can even say, I worked out the field. But what caused the plant to grow? You didn't cause that seed to germinate. You didn't cause that sprout to come up. You certainly didn't send the rain to water the field. You certainly didn't produce the sunlight that caused it to grow. And so anybody who said at the end of the day, well, this is my field, I grew it, these are my plants, and and I produced this crop. That's not true. If anything, we could say God worked to produce this crop. You did the part that God instructed you, the, the tilling of the field. But to say that we produce the fruit of righteousness is not entirely correct. But we have a responsibility, a responsibility to respond in obedience to the Lord. So hopefully these two verses together brought a little clarity to frequently misused verses. But I want to close with just one question. If the growth of Christian life is about God's activity and our responsibility, let me just ask one simple question. Is there any area in your life where you would recognize that you're not living in obedience to the Lord? Is there any area where you're not living in obedience to Christ in what you do, what you think, and what you say? Now, I I dare say that all of us have some area in our life where we're not fully obedient to the Lord, right? Maybe it's in something that you know that you're doing. Maybe a habit formed that you know isn't right. You know that it shouldn't be there in your life. But it's a whole lot harder to part with, maybe, than you thought. It's, it's, a, it's something you say, you know what, I, I, know that's, I know God would have me do that, but it's so much easier to do this. Um, maybe it's something you're, you've been avoiding. You say, I know God would have me to do this, but I really, really don't want to. Well, if our responsibility is gospel-shaped obedience... What, what areas are there? Maybe just isolate one and say, you know what? There's an area where I'm not, I'm not living in obedience. You see, it is God who is at work in us. And maybe part of God's work in you this morning is that you were here to hear this message. Maybe part of God's working in your life was to expose, you know what? There is something. And maybe that God is working in your willing, in your wanting. that you say, you know what? That is something I need to work on. That is something that needs to change in my life. God, give me the help. Give me the strength. Give me the power to do it. So as we go out from here today, think on this question. What area is it? What part of your life is not entirely obedient to the Lord? And I think we can all find one probably without looking too difficult, too hard. So let's go and work out our salvation knowing that it is God who is at work in you.